welcome back to another podcast with Exercises Medicine at UC San Diego, where we are all about raising awareness uh, of exercise for health and well-being, alongside advancing professional development in the diverse careers of sports medicine. And just a little disclaimer before we start, we are not medical or fitness professionals, and the information that we discuss today is just for entertainment purposes, and as such is not to be misconstrued as medical advice. Catherine, Catherine and I are the professional development coordinators at Exercises Medicine, and we will be hosting today's informational interview. And we are so, so, so happy to have Michael Rodriguez uh, on EIM's podcast today. He's a certified physician's assistant working in sports med. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please maybe introduce yourself before we dive into all the questions we have lined up? Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Mike Rodriguez. I'm a physician assistant. That's a common misconception that we uh, have an apostrophe after physicians or after physician. It's physician assistant. It's all right. Not to worry. Uh, there's good reason to, to be on your guys' show so that we can yeah, talk about it. I'm learning. I've been a, I've been a PA for the past uh, five years now. Uh, I spent about almost a year in family medicine and then transitioned to a sports medicine practice alongside a um, board certified orthopedic surgeon uh, that's specialty trained in, um, in sports medicine. Uh, what questions do you guys have? Sorry, that's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have plenty for you today. Please. Uh, maybe the first thing I'd love to know is, uh, when did you decide that you wanted to work towards becoming a physician assistant? So uh, for me, it's uh, a little bit different. Uh, I was a soldier um, uh, and having been a soldier, one of the medical practitioners you're going to see most often there is going to be a PA. In fact, uh, PA started uh, their, the beginnings of our profession began in uh, military medicine. So it's one of the largest um, employers of PAs. And it's also, uh, in fact, the PA program through the, uh, through the military, the uh, IPAP program, the inter-service physician assistant program uh, is the program that trains the most PAs in the country. So uh, that's how I learned about PAs and that's where I, my interest started. Yeah. Wow. All the way back then. Um, and so I guess what prompted you to pursue it, you know, since you were a soldier, but then I guess you wanted to move into be, becoming a PA? No, I, I did mostly because when I first met a PA, I couldn't tell the difference between what they did and what our, our physicians did. So mm -hmm. when you meet a PA and at least in, in the military. And even, I mean, I won't, don't get me wrong, uh, even in clinical practice, despite us introducing ourselves and saying, hi, you know, my name is Mike Rodriguez. I'm a PA. I tell every single one of my patients that uh, all of our responsibilities that we share are very similar to that opposition. So uh, having seen PAs practice uh, essentially at the top of their license and watching them, you know, do and change the world, I decided this is what I wanted to do. Um, in 2009, uh, I was, I requested a uh, re release from active duty at that point. It's essentially just a piece of paper. You send up your chain of command that says, I want to get out for whatever reason. Um, I'd been a soldier since 2001 when I enlisted anyway. And uh, at that point decided I wanted to pursue being a PA. So got out of the military and started college then. That's great. That sounds like two super fulfilling careers, I guess, being a soldier and also becoming a PA. Uh, definitely a, a life of, uh, of service in both. <laughs> And um, I know you just mentioned that you were in the military and then you went back to school. So I was wondering if you could just um, share a little bit about what your educational journey was like in becoming a PA. Like, did you go back to your community so, college or? Yeah. 
I did. In fact, uh, I, when I when I got out of active, uh, when I got out of the, the military, one of the things that I decided was I needed to start going to school again. I hadn't had any college uh, since I was in, I mean, since high school, essentially, I took maybe two college classes while I was a senior. Uh, now I was 27 years old at the time. Um, I went to community college. I decided San Diego of all places because it was nice and warm. Uh, I didn't have any family there, just decided to move there on a whim. Uh, went and attended San Diego Mesa College um, for two years. I did also some uh, prereqs at neighboring uh, institutions. Good thing is I had a priority enrollment as, as, a, as a veteran, which gave me a pretty a lot of versatility and trying to get classes that I needed. I didn't have to fight anybody for, you know, uh, for to enroll in a course, Sounds which nice. is pretty cool. So lucky. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, trust me. I, I already, I've heard this and I heard it my entire college career. Like, Oh, why do you guys get that? But either way um, I did, I went back to school um, after two years. I had about, uh, I transferred at, at, at two years, but I had about a hundred units that I had already completed. So having had all the uh, PA prereqs, done. I actually transferred to University of San Francisco. And that very first semester, um, one of my roommates who was uh, in PA school at the time uh, said, hey, uh, you should apply to these two programs. There was two programs in California at the time that didn't require uh, a bachelor's completed yet. In fact, Mm -hmm. there was three. There was um, Riverside Community College's program, uh, SJBC's program, which I attended, and then Stanford's program, which was not at the Stanford campus. It was hosted on the Stanford campus, and you received a certificate of completion from that program. Anyhow, I applied to Stanford's program and to SJBC's program. Um, I managed to get into both and decided to come here to Visalia, where I am now, uh, because it was cheaper. Um, And by that, I mean, when I attended PA school, it was only 2013, but our program was uh, 51,000, if I remember correctly, which is not what PA school costs today. Uh, At that point, our class was 27 students. I think only two of the students actually only conferred uh, a, a, an associate, associate's degree, and the rest of us either had graduate degrees or conferred our, our graduate degree then. So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting the way that PA education used to be. And by that, I mean, only five years ago, uh, you could still get an associate's degree, or even at Stanford's program, uh, only a certificate of completion. And at that point, uh, you were able and eligible to sit for the, um, for the certification exam we take nationally. Mm-hmm. Wow, you, you went to many places. Yeah. <laughs> And so upon deciding, were there any other factors that, you know, really played into your decision of where to go other than, uh, you know, financial reasons? So other factors were, at least for our program, uh, SJBC's program had a, a very, uh, most of the staff, in fact, uh, I would say, I don't know, maybe 60 to 80% of the staff were, were veterans. Um, in fact, our last program director, uh, Jed Grant, who is the um, president of the PA board in California now, and a um, clinical instructor, or rather a, um, a clinical medicine uh, professor at UOP. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where he's at now. But his their focus was very veteran oriented. And I really like that. It, it made me feel like there was uh, a, at least the, at least it was set up to where veterans had other people that understood what, you know, what they had gone through and, and, um, you know, what our contribution to, to medicine was going to be. And, and I really enjoyed that. In fact, that was one of the most important parts of our program. I really appreciated the, um, the emphasis on, on, on the veterans that we had. Yeah, that sounds like a really inclusive place. Mm-hmm. That you guys felt really welcome. That's great. 
And just curious, at that time, community colleges had PA programs? That's in fact, they did. Uh, the, in fact, there was more than just those programs here in California. I know that uh, Malcolm X Community College uh, in, uh, in Chicago, uh, I know the Red Rock Community College in Colorado, and uh, there's a couple of, of other programs. Um, I know there was maybe two in Florida. There was a few that were still uh, associates programs, but they mm -hmm. were, they were uh, I, I don't know if they would say they weren't hosted by, by a medical school, but anyhow, like where our program, uh, Riverside Community Colleges program and Stanford's program all had the option to confer a, your master's of medical science um, through an agreement with another university that has a PA program. Uh, it's um, St. Francis University. Anyhow, uh, they, they did exist that way. And in fact, there was programs that were only uh, certificate programs at the time. Oh, wow. And to, after, after 2013, there's, there was a, essentially a change in what the uh, accrediting body, the ARCPA um, standards were to who could host a PA program. And what that meant was it was either that you received or conferred your graduate degree from the institution uh, in, in which you attended, so for us, uh, SJBC is, is a community college, so they couldn't confer it at the time. Um, I know they're working on, at least from what I hear, uh, working at uh, receiving senior WASC accreditation so they can actually host the program again. And, and I hope they do. Um, but anyhow, the, the change was an administrative change. And that administrative change essentially had to either programs were absorbed by larger universities like uh, Stanford absorbed the program that they had uh, or uh, the community college program, even here in Riverside, it was absorbed by another institution. So uh, those are just by changing the rules, uh, kind of changed the way PAs are educated. Oh, I see. I've always heard so much about how PA has changed dramatically in like so little, such little time and it's still continuing to change. So it's like interesting to hear about that. It is. Other things that I think that you're going to be surprised by the amount of education that PAs receive in two years, uh, I think at least from, from, from what I read, uh, is making it clear that even, you know, even at, a, at the graduate level, um, the amount of units PAs complete within two years is vastly outnumbers uh, other professions that they come for doctorates, in fact. So audiologists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, their programs may be three to four years long, but mm -hmm. the uh, amount of actual units uh, received and completed in PA school generally uh, exceeds uh, even those of other clinical practitioners. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. In fact, they know, do. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at like a, if you look at like a physical therapy program, for instance, right, if you, if you look at the one that we have here uh, in a neighboring town, it's a three-year program. It's a doctorate, uh, entry-level doctorate of, 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 of physical therapy. It's a 110 unit program. It's a three-year program. So essentially you're confined, or at least their training is confined by 110 units this is how much time commitment students have to put into this program in three years. Mm -hmm. The average PA program is between 110 to 140 units in two years. Um, therefore, oh, wow. the amount of, of, of time you put into mm -hmm. your education yeah. uh, is equivalent to what they would have put in in three to four years. And, and again, that's, those are some of the things that when you look at a PA program, that's what really makes them special. It's they, there's a lot of information and uh, clinical medicine isn't, uh, you know, for the faint of heart, at least not learning it as, as, as condensed as a uh, you know, curriculum that PAs have to learn, uh, it is definitely something that I think in the future will probably even uh, change PA entry level uh, degrees, probably even uh, into the doctorate level. Wow. wow. So you were saying 110 to 140 units. So I guess during your education, did you have 
much time to focus on other extracurriculars or was it just school, school, school? It, it felt like school, school, school. Uh, but I mean, don't get me wrong, we studied every single day. Uh, I hear people all the time talk to, especially colleagues talking to anybody who's a PA hopeful and they're like, I would never do PA school over again. And you know, the funny thing is that's not true. Um, I, and, I, and I tell them like, don't scare people. What you're really saying is if I knew what, it, if I, knew what I know now, I'd totally do it again, it'd be, it'd be a breeze. But when you're living through these programs, it's the hardest thing that you probably have ever done. You know, you shun relationships away. You say, hey, I'll talk to you guys in the, you know, in the next two years. And, and that, that does happen where you feel like there's just not enough time in the day. Um, my study partner, uh, Jay, and I used to, you know, wake up at four o'clock in the morning and we'd be at Starbucks drinking coffee and studying for whatever exam was going to be that day. And we wouldn't go to bed until maybe 11 p.m. So I'll tell oh. you, it felt like that for sure. But the amount of information that has to be consumed uh, and the essentially the responsibility that you have, uh, you know, with patient care, totally uh, warranted that type of, of, you know, study habits. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. 4 a.m. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But but I mean, but the cool thing is, like I said, it's it's doable. Uh, PA school is difficult. It's there's a whole lot of information and it's like a whole, um, you know you take as much information as you can ever imagine that you would have learned in university and then imagine that you have to do that in your didactic year in a year. And that's probably not even enough of, of, of how to describe it, but the reality is it's totally doable. Uh, medicine itself is a, uh, or the PA model of the way that you're trained uh, is, is awesome. Uh, I mean, out of 24 people that started my program, 24 completed it. And I mean, as far as uh, how many people are actually practicing today? It's, you know, 23 out of 24 are, are practicing now. So it's, it's definitely doable. <laughs> That's great stats. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, nearly. Yeah. We had a, one of our, uh, one of our uh, students from our program uh, ended up passing away. So uh, essentially, you know, that's a, that's another story, but mm-hmm. And um, sort of branching off with that, I was just curious, what's like a typical day in the life of a PA? I know it's like different for every day, but just like generally. So I have, uh, I have experience in family medicine, uh, urgent care, uh, and orthopedic surgery. Uh, so I can tell you from an orthopedic standpoint uh, or from an orthopedic day in the life of, on Mondays, uh, the surgeon that I, that I work with, his name's Ian Duncan. He's an orthopedic surgeon. We do uh, joint replacements uh, at, at our local hospital here. Anyhow, uh, that day for me starts at about 6 a.m. I get to the hospital. Uh, by that point, I make sure that all of the orders are in the computer for our patients. By that, I mean everything that the pre-op needs to know, everything that the intraoperative uh, plan needs to have, and then everything that has to happen after- afterward. I take care of that. Um, at that same time, the, the good thing about, about being a PA is you get to see the shared responsibility between you and your, you know, collaborating surgeon or, 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 or supervising physician. At that point, he's, you know, doing another HPR on our patient or a history of, uh, of, of pertinent illness on our patient. He's signing the patient's extremity, consenting the patient for the surgery. At that time, my job is also to make sure that our room is expedited so that we can continue working and we can essentially keep our OR day on schedule. Uh, on those days, we do mostly joint replacements. So making sure our images are up, that the, rep is, the, the reps for the companies that, depending on what type of implants we're going to use that day or what surgery we're doing, the patient is positioned correctly, the patient's receiving the right type of anesthesia, 
the, um, the surgery is the correct surgery. Those are all things that are very important. And then essentially I call my boss and say, Hey, you know, the room's already set up. The patient is being draped at this point. He stops doing whatever he's doing, comes to the OR, everybody's scrubbed in. By the time he walks in, usually um, the patient is already draped and we're literally ready to hand him a pen and say, start marking on this patient after we do a timeout. So uh, on surgical days, it's pretty cool because we'll do that same, uh, you know, that same thing will repeat itself five to six times during the day. We'll operate from 7 a.m. to about 5 p.m., um, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. On days where we're not in the OR, uh, there's uh, essentially, uh, it's a clinic day. So my day on Tuesdays usually begins with rounding on our hospital patients to stay overnight. So I'll get to the hospital around 7 a.m. Uh, and then to the clinic about 8. And my patients are usually about every 15 minutes, uh, I have a new patient, or I have a, a patient that I'm going to see on days where uh, the, the surgeon and I work together, uh, we split a schedule. So patients that he's seen in the last, on, on their last visit, I get to see uh, any new patients we both get to meet. And then um, essentially I'll go over there, do a physical exam, go over their, their diagnostic imaging, and then give them education on this is what we're going to do about it. And then essentially the surgeon just signs off on absolutely, you know, I think I can fix that. I know I can make that better. And uh, on those days, believe it or not, uh, the, the numbers are pretty astronomical. Uh, about 50 patients plus are, are on, the, on the schedule that day. But since we're kind of splitting them, we're both seeing about anywhere between 20 to 35 patients each on the days we work together. On the days we don't work together, my schedule is like that, except without the surgeon. Uh, seeing new patients, follow-ups, a lot of injections, any kind of procedures that, that I have to do. So anyhow, it's a, it's a pretty busy day. Sounds so hectic. <laughs> to, to say the least. Yeah. But, no, but I will tell you, it sounds hectic, but the, the most con- time-consuming part of, the, of those days is things like charting, like the mm-hmm. you know, mundane stuff. But our staff is incredible. Uh, the streamlining from you know, getting our patients from the door to x-ray to our rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly, our staff makes it the easiest job in the world. And by that, I mean, if, if you were to come to our clinic, um, it's, it rarely ever, I think, will seem like it's um, too much work. Uh, mm-hmm. The reality is there's still time to, you know, to, to do stuff. So uh, honestly, I think it's a, it's a great place to work. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that, I guess, uh, 15 minutes isn't enough? Because I think you said 15 minutes was like the... <laughs> so, so I'll tell you, the, the answer is absolutely. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I've, I've done like even a preoperative uh, consent, right? I mean, I've literally seen somebody pull out a magnifying glass and start reading word for word and you just take your time and apologize to the next patient. And maybe, you know, the next visit could be an injection that takes me from as soon as I walk into the room, by the time I'm finished and putting on a Band-Aid on a knee, could take me about a minute. So, you know, that's another 14 minutes I can add to, to the previous visit. So sometimes we're, we run behind. Uh, that's mm-hmm. just like any doctor's office. I mean, we've run even up to two hours behind sometimes. But we mm-hmm. take as much time as we need with our patients and try to give them as much as they absolutely need. And don't get me wrong. If, you know, if you're, if you're a year out from a total knee replacement, we take an x-ray, everything looks great. You say, I feel fantastic. You show us a range of motion. You have no complaints at all. We can high five and walk out the door in a minute. Uh, I mean, but you know, if this is a new problem and you need explaining to what it is that you're going to have, what procedures you're having, we take our time to make sure patients are happy and, and, you know, they, they understand everything there, you know, that exactly what, what's going to happen after now. So anyhow, I, I think that, I think there, it does seem a little fast, but you've got to, it, it's all, it's all about a, you know, it's kind of a shell game. You kind of shuffling minutes from here to there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, sounds like you're yeah. with it too. <laughs> 
And so have you had any super memorable experiences while working? And you don't have to say any names or anything like that, but has anything like stood out to you? No, no, absolutely not. <clears throat> anything stood out. I will tell you, I mean, a lot does. When, when you think about our job, you have to think that when you think about orthopedic surgery in particular, uh, not, you know, unconsequential of the other uh, of the other types of practices that I've worked for, when you think about sick, for us, it's more about, you know, it's pain. Now, that's what most people show up with. I broke something, fell, I heard a pop, and now I have this problem. Uh, I think every single day, uh, you can make a really good difference, especially in people's lives that are in, in, in a lot of pain, uh, being able to offer them that solution. Uh, and frankly, even being able to offer them options, uh, it could be doing nothing, and this is what you have, or all the way to surgery and everything in the middle. Uh, I think when, when it comes to every patient experience, I think um, they, they, they can all at least in the practice that I'm in, to avoid things like burnout, you have to be very happy and know that you're making a difference every day. So, so I'll be honest, any, any one case in particular, mm, not, not really. Honestly, I, I find that if somebody broke a hip and you're in the ER consulting to fix this patient and you know that this is what they need, you're telling them this, this is this what they need. They just so happen to show up and they, you know, they, they're, they haven't eaten anything and we can fix this in the next 20 minutes. I mean, every single time you do that is, uh, you know, is, is definitely a positive experience. That, that sounds, again, that sounds very fulfilling. And, and, and it has to be, you know, one of the things that I learned, uh, I had a really good friend who was an optometrist and I was a soldier and he, he looks over at me and, you know, he says his, his father was an optometrist and he's an optometrist. They're, they're both, uh, they're, they're, bo they're, they're both very happy, but he said, you know, you want to make sure your job is about longevity. So, so what that really means is every day you go to work, uh, you know, if, if you really want to be here as long as, you know, as you can doing something that you love to do, one, you got to love to do it, but two, you know, make sure that it's something that you, that, that makes you and fulfills you as a, as a, as a human being, you know, it be both financially, professionally, you know, those are all things that, that, that you want to have. So finding that really good balance, especially as a PA is, is really important. And um, I know you listen to like a lot of the good parts of being a PA, but I was just wondering, um, what are like the pros and cons that you think um, pre-PA students might need to know about? So I'll, I'll tell you, I, 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 that's, that's a good question. When it, comes to, when it comes to your scope of practice, I don't think that that's, uh, honestly, I, I think we have an amazing scope of practice. I think we have an amazing profession. Uh, I think the last, um, the last NCCPA or the National Certif Certifying uh, body um, survey that I saw said something like 84% of PAs would say that they're, you know, that they would do this job all over again, or they would recommend mm -hmm. it to somebody. What, what that means to me is sure the positive, right? But what that means is you can find, you know, you can find 18% of PAs that probably don't like what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The things that, that you're going to have to sacrifice is if you work in a specialty like ours, uh, we've been on, you know, call for trauma, orthopedic trauma over Christmas, you know, over Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, on my daughter's birthday, those are, those are things that we, that we start to, you can't just say, I'm not going to do it. You, you know what I mean? Or if you work in emergency medicine, I don't know if you know this, but the ER doesn't close. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of commitment uh, to that kind of, you know, to this kind of job and, and, and more than anything, a lot of demand for your time. You know, if, if both of both my wife and I are, are both practicing PAs, but you know, 
her clinic opens and we have a kid who's vomiting and we have to figure out what to do. One of us, you know, if not both of us are like, hey, I've got to be there today because we have all of these responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So I think as, as a PA, as long as it's, you know, something that you love to do, um, you're going to have to sacrifice time. And, and, and that's, you know, don't get me wrong, I get a bunch of time off. I have like 31 days of time off on, you know, at the beginning of the year. I have this vacation that just magically appears as, as uh, on my, on my, on my check stub. I have a lot of freedom to the time that what time we close the clinic. Um, this, my supervising physician doesn't have any problem with me saying, Hey, I have this appointment. I'm going to stop the day at this time. There's a lot of flexibility, at least in my practice. Um, but sometimes there's not. And sometimes I have to, you know, pick up the phone and tell my wife, Hey, we're going to be in the OR longer, or we're going to be doing this longer. And they understand. So there's still that strain, uh, despite the flexibility, uh, there's still that strain that you're going to experience, especially with the family. Oh, I see. And, um, I know you just mentioned about, um, um, making sure that, um, PA is something that you love to do. And I was wondering if you have any advice for, um, any PA students or pre-PA students, like how can they make sure that PA is the right um, occupation for them? Or, um, the the right answer is, one, you have to love people. Uh, if you can't do this, if you don't have uh, the communication to, to verbalize with the human being, then probably consider uh, if you've never met one, uh, see if you can shadow a PA. Those are all very good, you know, good indicators of I, I like what this, you know, I like what they do. Um, you have to, you have to realize that when it comes to, let's say, being an occupational therapist or a podiatrist, or I could name any other, you know, flavor of, 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 uh, of healthcare practitioner, but the reality is, unless you have personal experience with those professions, most people don't know what they're getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you want to make sure that you're happy and you want to make sure that it's something that you love to do, make sure to shadow somebody, make sure that you have a job in that industry. And that's why for PA schools themselves, they require clinical experience uh, so that you have that knowledge of, well, what is, you know, what is the contribution to this big, you know, machine? What, what part of, of this, you know, what cog in this machine am I going to be? So I think if you really want to be happy and you want to know it's the right decision for you, definitely meet PAs as many as you can, uh, shadow as many people as you can, and honestly work in healthcare and see that people and the end product of our, of our profession is taking care of, of, of you know, of, of human beings providing medical care for them. If, if you're passionate for all those things and, and, and you see that, it's it's a great profession. Yeah. I've looked into PA school and I've seen the like the clinical hours required to even apply. And so it's all making right. sense, like why that number is so large, I guess, like to really understand if you have an affinity for people, an affinity for healthcare. That doesn't yeah, and, and I'll tell you, there, there's there's people who do jobs and realize I don't like this. And, and that's a big deal. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the training, as far as I've seen now, I've seen numbers up to, you know, $150,000 to get trained to do this job, you know, to, to have, honestly, to have the privilege to, to do, uh, to, to be part of this profession. And the reality is, if you're going to make an investment that large, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're going to work to get to practice medicine and go through PA school, you should know what you're getting yourself into. And, and I think that's why that those numbers are definitely important. Yeah. And so uh, I guess going back one question to when you were saying, you know, it's a really, f- uh, or sometimes it's fast paced uh, at the clinic and sometimes you need to be called in even when, you know, you're off. Uh, have you ever considered, I guess, switching to a more laid back uh, specialty or is that 
are all specialties just fast paced like that? So, uh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I've had days that are even in other specialties that are even on my hardest day at, or, you know, doing orthopedics is, is not even close to, to what it could be. Um, there are such things as more laid back jobs. Uh, it just depends on your type of practice. And, and frankly, the way that it works for healthcare practitioners is that your compensation uh, is most of the time based on productivity. Uh, so what that means is there are jobs that are very laid back. Um, like you could go work at a, you know, you can be a PA at a prison, let's say. Um, your patient panel is probably 10 to 15 people in a day, sometimes even less. Um, mm -hmm. So that is a place where you can practice. And essentially, they're just not from the logistical issues of safely getting an, an inmate or your patient into seeing you, that, that'll kind of slow down your day. Um, I think for most PAs, I think that as much work as healthcare practitioners are trained uh, to have to function under, um, most people would lose their minds if it was a lot more laid back than that. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that. I just, I just mean there's, you always need something to do. And the good thing is even in any practice, you're going to find that if you're feeling overworked, it's probably that you are. Um, but I'll be honest, I, I, and hopefully my, my boss doesn't watch this, but I feel really overpaid for what I do. And, and, and that's a good problem to have. And, and I don't mean that in any negative way is I think I, 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 and I know that I do, I, I provide uh, the most quality, most amazing care for our patients. And I'm very happy, even with the workflow, the way that it is, it's, it's wonderful. I, I am, I couldn't imagine it being any slower. I, I, I would, I would, I think I would pull my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're in an environment that, you know, suits your work pace and mm -hmm. that pays you well. I, I'm really glad. <laughs> And um, I was just curious. Um, oh, wait, I just completely blinked on my question. <laughs> it's um, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember now. Um, so I know for um, physical therapy, the nature of um, meeting a patient, it's more like um, you meet one-on-one -on -one with them for like a long period of time. Um, right. For PA, is it more like short-term? Like you see a patient for like maybe like, um, like I don't know, like 15 minutes and you like not, don't see them for a long period of time or ever again? Or like, do you see like, or do you often see like a patient for like uh, sporadically or like how um, is like the patient sure. interaction? So, so that depends again, if let's say you're working in emergency medicine, you may never see mm -hmm. the same patient again. Or if you're working in a, in an urgent care, you may see that person one time and never again mm -hmm. in practices like family practice, or even in our practice, not every patient we see is a surgical patient, let's say for, for us in particular. Mm -hmm. So you come in, we, and say, this is what we think the pathology is of this problem. So your shoulder pain, knee pain, get hip pain, fill in the blank. You need more studies. We get an X, we get an MRI, let's say. Um, at that point, we will see the patient. And essentially the goal should be, you know, to treat the patient's underlying problem. It'd be with surgery or conservative me measures. Sometimes it takes one visit. Sometimes it takes 10 visits. Uh, and and, and it, in practices such as family medicine, one of the things that you'll realize is, you know, I've got this patient who has all of these comorbidities. Do I try to treat them all at once or can I have them come back next week or the week after that? So it just depends on, you know, on how you want to manage the amount of how many types of issues you have to manage right now and how many of these issues we can say, how about we work on these and, you know, and make this a long-term plan. So, I mean, there's patients that I've been seeing at our clinic for five years. I mean, and these are patients who are either too young or too sick uh, to have a definitive procedure 
or there's just not a good procedure for them. So we provide them with conservative treatment. Um, so it just really depends on the type of issue. Uh, there's patients that I see and we'll, we'll only see them one time and say, this is the problem that you have. And frankly, there's no good surgical fix or there's no good fix for what you have. And sometimes you just find yourself giving people bad news and saying, you know, this is a problem that you just have to live with until it progresses or until you get older, until you get healthier or fill in the blank with, you know, what it is that we have to do. So it's, I think it's, a, it's a, it's a pretty hard question to answer depending on pathology, depending on age, depending on circumstance. Mm -hmm. right. Now, have you ever found that, um, you know, after, I guess, working at least in, you know, sports medicine uh, for five years, I believe you said. Mm -hmm. Yes. Have you ever found that like, uh, there are cases or there are some days where you just get stumped because like uh, perhaps there's a, a, a new pathology or something that you can't, uh, I guess, diagnose. Does that happen so, or is it all, all the time? So oh, really? I will tell you this. So if anybody ever tells you that they know everything, that's uh -huh. dangerous. Okay. So that's, that's a big red flag. So most importantly is this, at least in, in the state of California, let's say for the way that PAs have to practice, the very first thing is, one, you know, when, when does a patient have to see a doc, let's say, and, and I'll use this as an example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll circle this back on to when my supervisor or my, uh, my, the, the surgeon that I work with is stumped as well. So in California, there's really three times where, where when I teach students, I say, there's three times here. One, the patient has to see the doc. Fine, punt. That needs to go to, to the physician. Two, you treat something and it doesn't get better with what you're doing, which means you're probably either missing something not considering something or treating a totally different problem or three, you have no idea what you're looking at. Right. And that happens all the time in any kind of, of uh, clinical scenario. If you need input from another specialist, if you need the supervisor for a PA in particular, then either I can text them, I can call them, or I'd say, Hey, I'll make you an appointment to see Dr. Duncan and he'll go ahead and see it. And oftentimes I will tell you both him and I, I'll say, Hey man, I don't know what that is. And I'll present the case to him. He'll say, that sounds weird. I'll go see him. And he'll meet them, go through another half hour with this patient and walk out and go, I don't know what they have. So even then, I will tell you, I respect, uh, I respect that because one of the things I got taught in PA school, and, and I mean, I'm pretty sure that I wish I would have counted how many times I, I was told this was, it's okay to tell a patient I don't know. And it's not a bad thing. In, in fact, it's a, it's a very it's great for patients to understand, you know what, what you have probably doesn't need me right now. And even if my surgeon sees them or, or anybody else sees them, the, the wrong thing to do is to assume that you can treat everything. And, and like I was saying before about, you know, not every patient is a surgical patient. One of the ways that, you know, that, that you do well in this type of practice is only do surgery on the things, you know, that you guys can fix. If you can make this better, fix that. If you can't, why cut on somebody? You increase the risk of death, you increase the risk of infection. So knowing the limitations are, are, are very good and knowing the patients know that too. You know, we let patients know sometimes this is a long shot. This may get better or may, it may not get better. And this is why. And, and, and knowing that, that you have that limitation and also that the medicine has limitations, surgery has its limitations uh, is, is a wonderful thing for patients to know, uh, you know, mostly from a standpoint of ethics, but, you know, for most importantly, so that you don't cause anybody harm. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Wow. Um, 
And I just have like this random question, but uh, I hear all the time how um, what PAs do is very similar to what physicians do. And I don't know if that's like a myth or if that's like true. Or I was wondering if you could elaborate more on like, or differentiate between what a physician does and what a PA does. Because I hear all the time my friends tell me that like, it's exactly the but, same, but yeah. <laughs> so it depends on your specialty. Um, if, you know, I've, I've worked in, in an urgent care setting where I'm the solo provider there. I have a nurse and I have a tech that take care of discharging and putting in, you know, making sure that our patients receive the medicines that I, that I asked for. And, and, and that moment, there is no doctor there. So you will receive uh, treatment that is to, uh, it's a, it's a legal term, but it's, you know, to the standard of care, it's the, the care that you should receive for the problem that you have. So, so having said that is, can PAs perform, uh, you know, do we perform duties that are, that are similar in responsibility and scope to physicians? Absolutely. There is no you know, there's no like medicine light, you know, I'm not, this isn't, if, if you know, this is what the problem is, if you're treating everything within your scope and working it within your responsibility, then absolutely, I think you won't be able to tell the difference. Uh, there is, you know, when I set surgeries up for my surgeon, let's say, right, I saw, I saw a patient just yesterday, and I said, this is clear, this is what you have, this is how we fix this problem, gave them all of their options, patient elected surgery, said to the patient, we'll give you a call so that we schedule you. What I did then is text my boss and said, Hey, I've got this, you know, 40 something year old person. This is their problem. I sent him a little, you know, click through of the MRI. This is what you're going to, you know, this is what you're going to do. And he's like, outstanding. Thank you. So did it need the surgeon? The answer is no, because I gave the patient all their options. The only thing that I'm not going to do is do the surgery. So I just want to make sure he gets the heads up of Hey, this is what you're going to cut on. You've never met this person. I'll make sure you meet them when, you know, they're here for their pre-op. But the reality is my responsibility to that patient is to educate them, to tell them exactly what they have, to tell them how we fix it, to give them the same information my boss is going to give them. The only thing is that's from a surgical standpoint, you know, the surgeon's going to be doing the surgery. If that wasn't the case, and let's say I worked for somebody who didn't do surgery, or we worked in a family medicine practice, then the patient care that the patient is supposed to receive is should be should be should be comparable should be equivalent oh i see um and um i was just wondering um were there any setbacks um in um, becoming a pa throughout your career or like in the process of becoming a pa so in the process of saying as far as setbacks personally through from pa school or like personally or academically or like um just like any um factor so I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I guess the question's a little, uh, a little unclear to me. Um, oh, sorry. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. Do you mean like, <laughs> is, is there anything at all that I find that I have a handicap in from being a PA or do you mean trying to become, you know, I'm on trying your to become, to, to going to trying to be, like process of like becoming a PA or like process of like going, getting into PA gotcha. school. Yeah. Most, the most important thing uh, is number one, just, finding a PA that you, that, you know, uh, I know that that's one of the most important things. A lot of programs require a letter recommendation from a PA. Let's say, uh, there is a, there is websites, uh, the PASO website here in California that, you know, PAs can put their information in if they're, if they're able to, students are able to shadow them. Um, my name's on there and I get about 40 to 50 shadows a year. I, I like to do that because having heard students say that that's the most important thing that I just don't know where to meet a PA. Uh, I got care from a PA, but you know, I had a broken arm and you're going to ask the guy who's fixing you if you can shadow them. Generally, that's, you know, generally that's say no. 
um, mostly because you guys have a, a relationship as, 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 as patient and provider. Uh, but I think that's the biggest issue that I've found as far as, as PA school goes. I mean, there are 147, pro, or, excuse me, 247 programs in the United States as far as, as the last time I, I, I looked at the ARCPA's website, but there's an abundance of programs. There is an abundance of, of applicants. Most people won't get in their very first time that they apply. Um, but I think the hardest thing for folks, other than even just getting a job in healthcare, you know, those, those get, getting experience just means you have to take a step back and slow down probably on, on, an, on your timeline of when you're going to apply to PA school. But I think if anything, just meeting a PA is, is, is pretty hard for people. Yeah. I know so. there have been like uh, programs, at least uh, over quarantine that have been set up like for virtual shadowing. So that's all really cool that the PA community is doing that for pre-K students. <laughs> there, there is. And, and I mean, the, the, the right answer is I had somebody call me from Indiana of all places and say, you know, how do I, how do I shadow a PA? And, and the answer is cold call, you know, pick up the phone, call practice managers and say, Hey, I want to, you know, do you have a PA? And if so, can, can I meet your PA or, or can you give them my info? It's hard for me to find, you know, somebody to shadow it. And most people will be able to find somebody in their area. I mean, I'd say <clears throat> the more rural you get, the less providers there are probably the less, you know, options there's going to be, but especially in big cities, <clears throat> pick up the phone. You know, you, you don't lose anything by calling someone and saying, Hey, I want to do what you do. And, and most of us in this profession understand, you know, this is something that if it's available or, and, and possible, then, you know, we could, we could probably work our way into, you know, getting that done. Yeah. And that, that's really inspiring to know that the PA community like is doing all that. Um, and that you're part of it too, on that letter of recommendation thing. That's really <laughs> oh yeah. That it can become a little time consuming, but I know that's the most difficult part as far as, you know, students meeting somebody who does this job. There's only, I believe, less than 120,000 of us right now. I mean, you know, trying to find one should be easy if you make an appointment, but trying to find somebody that you can meet and talk to about their profession can be a little hard. I get that. And that's great. I'm so glad that we have you here so that hopefully some of our, you know, members <laughs> can learn from you, definitely. And so I guess before we close out this episode, um, sure. I had one last question for you. Have you found that, I guess, everything that you've learned, especially um, in your specialty for PA um, or as a PA, uh, you know, in orthopedics and sports med, have you found that that has influenced the way you exercise or move through life or anything like that? I will tell you, it makes me more cautious about doing stuff. So like getting on a ladder and putting up Christmas lights, forget even the, just the working out part. Heck yeah, that makes it makes me way more like I know the consequences of this of what we can do what can happen right now like running stairs I'm not doing that so I think if anything uh, if anything lots of people do that in the gym <laughs> I know they do but but what I'm saying is you because we get to see sports injuries especially you know surgical sports injuries like I can't say I would never do a certain type of exercise but I will say there's very high intensity exercises that people do that maybe. Mm, maybe they shouldn't do. And that's the thing that, that, that this makes me a lot more cautious in terms of like, man, I'd really like to try that. That looks really cool if I did this type of race or I did this kind of run. But then I look at like the long-term outcomes and I'm like, I don't know, man, I don't know if running a marathon is really what's best for me. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, by all means, you know, run a marathon. If, 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 you know, if you, if you can run, if you can do it, do it, uh, you know, continue doing it safely. But I think if anything, it just makes you, uh, it makes you overthink things. <laughs> Yeah. But at least you're more cautious, like you said, which is, oh, think absolutely. Yeah. And I think if anything, when I talk to our patients is, you know, 
can I get back to, you know, this type of exercise? The answer is sure. But if you know, follow proper body mechanics, make sure somebody's spotting you. Once you get tired, understand that that's the limitation of probably how far your body can go right now. So it's better to do, you know, three perfect, you know, squats, weighted squats, rather than, you know, than, 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 than four that are, that are poorly done, uh, because your body mechanically, you can injure yourself. So I think, you know, making sure that you understand those limitations as a, as a patient, um, and being able to tell patients, look, the last time I saw somebody do this this way, that, that didn't work out too well. I think it's, it's just important. Uh, I think from my standpoint, it doesn't just make me more cautious, but it allows me to tell patients, you know, this is probably not a good idea. This is, you know, you should, we probably shouldn't do that exercise anymore because you've already had, you know, two ACL reconstructions and we're not going to do a third one. You know, th- those are, those are important things to, to be able to caution people of and, and, you know, live by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so hopefully all of our members watching um, or who will be watching took note of that. And thank you so much, Michael. Um, I know I learned a lot. I'm sure Daniel learned a lot. And so we really, really, really appreciate your time. Um, Thank you for spending time with Exercises Medicine today. 